Amen. Well, as I said, uh, my name is Adam, and it's great to be with you today. And I want to start today uh, a little bit differently. I'd like to play a short video clip for you. It's an ad from Apple that was released in 2006, and it was the first ad in the Get a Mac campaign, which ran from 2006 to 2009, and was one of the most successful advertising campaigns in history. Check it out. Hello, I'm a Mac. And I'm a PC. Sentai, you okay? No, I'm not okay. I have that virus that's going around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, better, you better stay back. This one's a doozy. That's okay. I'll be fine. No, no. Do not be a hero. Last year, there were 114,000 known viruses for PCs. PCs? Not Macs. So, just grab this one. I think I got to crash. Hey, if you feel like that'll help, good. Now, in 2005, the sales of Apple's Mac were decreasing. And so Apple needed to do something to turn it around. And they came up with this campaign, which would go on to include 66 different ads. And along with the release of the iPhone just a year later in 2007, it really served to turn around the fortunes of the company. It actually served to, to launch them to become the worldwide brand that they are to this day. Now, why am I giving free advertising to Apple? They certainly don't need it. Well, the reason is that when Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, he came with an incredible message. He came with an amazing invitation into God's kingdom. He said that if we will turn from our sin and if we will turn to him, we can be part of God's kingdom forever. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to measure up. We simply have to trust in him. And of course, Jesus wanted this life-changing message to go to every corner of the globe. He wanted it to be shared with every person in the world. And the question is, how would he get the word out? To put it crassly, what would be his marketing campaign? And this is what our passage today is all about. Because a little over 2,000 years ago, Jesus sat on a mountainside with his followers gathered in front of him. And he said to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now this passage that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 5, it's part of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a collection of Jesus' teaching, which we find in the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 5 through to 7. And over the next 10 weeks, we're going to be exploring these chapters together. We're kicking off a brand new sermon series today, which we've called Sermon on the Mount, Following Jesus in a Fallen World. Now, the Bible doesn't actually call this collection of teaching the Sermon on the Mount. Theologians came up with this title a little bit later on, but it is an appropriate title. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus delivers it on a mountainside. And it's called a sermon because Jesus is teaching us. He's instructing us. Here's how it begins. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching us. 
and he's teaching us what it means to follow him. Here's the way that John Stott puts it in his brilliant little commentary. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. For it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. The Sermon on the Mount shows us what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in this world. And this is why Jesus covers and touches on so many different topics. He talks about anger and lust and anxiety. He talks about the Bible and prayer and the poor. He talks about our words and our money and so on and so forth. The Sermon on the Mount is a guide to following Jesus in a fallen world. And the reason that we're kind of kicking off the year or or, or kind of kicking off the year with this series is because we want to follow Jesus more faithfully in 2023. We want to know what Jesus wants from us. We want to trust what Jesus says to us, and we want to do what Jesus calls us to do. Now, maybe you're a Christian, but but you would say, if, if you're being honest, you've drifted from Jesus. Or you've become distracted by other things. Well, consider this series an invitation to come back to Jesus with all your heart. To choose to follow him on that narrow road. Maybe you're not a Christian. And we're so glad that you're here, and, but maybe you're thinking, well, this series doesn't sound like it's going to be very relevant for me, like it doesn't really apply to me. And I would say, maybe you have an idea in your mind about what the Christian faith is all about. Maybe you have some assumptions about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Well, why not hear it from the lips of Jesus himself? Why not hear what it means to follow Jesus according to Jesus? This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. What it means to follow Jesus according to Jesus. So wherever you find yourself spiritually right now, I believe that you will find Jesus' vision in the Sermon on the Mount to not only be challenging, and it's going to be challenging to all of us, but also compelling. And so I hope that you will join us over these next 10 weeks for this journey into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you have your Bibles open there in front of you to Matthew chapter 5, you'll see that the sermon begins with the Beatitudes, this series of eight sayings where Jesus describes the character of his followers, where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the merciful, and so on and so forth. Now, these are some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, but we're actually going to skip over them. Not because they're not important, but because we spent an entire sermon series on them last year. This time last year, we worked through the Beatitudes, saying by saying, and you can find all those sermons on our website or on our YouTube channel. And so today, we're going to jump to verse 13, but we have to understand the flow that gets us there, because after Jesus lists the eight Beatitudes, that we're to be humble and we're to be meek and we're to be merciful and so on, we kind of expect Jesus to say, and if you live this way, the world is going to love you. The world is going to embrace you and accept you. After all, who doesn't love humility and mercy? But Jesus says this actually won't be the case. He says the world will actually hate you, reject you, insult you, marginalize you. And the question then naturally becomes, well, if this is the case, if if this is going to be the attitude of the world towards us, 
What should our attitude be towards the world? How should we respond to the world? This is what Jesus touches on in verses 13 to 16. And this is what our passage is all about, our attitude towards the world, our influence in the world, our role in the world as followers of Jesus. Now, this is an important topic, isn't it? I'm sure that you've noticed that that Christians are not exactly the popular group today, not exactly the cool kids. And so the question is, well, what should we do? How should we respond? What role does God want us to play? I mean, if you had to come up with a metaphor or an image to describe the role of the church in the world, what image comes to mind? What metaphor would you use? Maybe the the image that comes to your mind is that of a soldier, that, that we're in a battle and we need to be prepared to fight. Or maybe the image that comes to your mind is a monk. If the world doesn't like us, then we need to retreat from the world, remove ourselves from the world. Or maybe the image that comes to your mind is a chameleon. You know, that little lizard that can change its colors depending on what environment it's in. Maybe we need to try and fit in with the world, change our colors to fit our environment. These are common ideas in our day about the role of Christians in the world, to fight, to retreat, to fit in. And these were actually common ideas in Jesus' day as well. You know, there was a a group in Jesus' day called the Zealots. And their approach to the world, to the Romans, as you might guess by their name, it was to fight. It was to take up arms and to take the fight to those who opposed them. There was another group called the Essenes. And their response was to retreat, to remove themselves. They went to the wilderness and gathered their own communities. They withdrew from public life to worship God privately. There was another group called the Sadducees. We meet them in the pages of the Bible. They're from the upper echelon of society. They're religious and political leaders, but they compromised with Rome. They did what they had to do to keep the peace. It's the same approach that we see in our day, to fight, to retreat, to fit in. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that we are to play a different role. He says that we are to have a different attitude and a different approach. As Jesus looks out at his followers, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Salt and light. That's the role of Jesus' followers in the world today. Now, what does this mean? How do we do it? This is what we're going to touch on briefly this morning. And we're going to look at just those two sayings. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. So firstly, you are the salt of the earth. Now, maybe you find this a little bit insulting. Maybe you would have preferred Jesus to say, you are the gold of the earth. You are the diamonds of the earth. I mean, after all, salt is a pretty common substance, isn't it? I mean, you open just about any pantry in the world, you'll find salt. You go to just about any restaurant in the world, you'll find salt on the table. You can go to Woolies and you can buy salt and it's not going to cost you very much. Salt is fairly cheap and common, and ordinary. And yet salt is also incredibly potent and important. And this was especially true in the ancient world, in Jesus' day. Salt was a valuable commodity in Jesus' day. In fact, we have records that Roman soldiers received their pay in salt. 
This is where the saying comes from, they're worth their salt. Now, I floated the idea with the team this week, but they weren't very keen. Now, the reason that salt was so valuable in the ancient world was twofold. Firstly, salt was used to enhance the flavor of food, the same way that we use it today, to draw out flavors in a meal. But in the ancient world, salt was also used to preserve food. In the days before electricity and refrigeration, salt would be rubbed into meat to slow down the process of decay. Salt brings out the flavor and slows down decay. It's a flavor enhancer and it's a preservative. And this seems to be the idea that Jesus has in mind. His followers are to provide flavor to the world and they are to help slow down its moral decay. If we were to put it simply, we'd say this, followers of Jesus are to make the world a better place. Now, now I know that that sounds a bit pie in the sky, sounds like every corporate slogan that you'll hear these days, sounds simplistic and idealistic, but this is why I think Jesus uses the imagery of salt. Because salt, though it's small, though it's ordinary, it changes things. You sprinkle a little bit of salt on your meal and it draws out the flavor. You sprinkle a bit of salt on meat, it preserves it. And the point is that God has sprinkled you, like salt, into your home, into your street, into your workplace, into your school, into your retirement village, to do small things which in His hands make a big difference. To do small things with integrity. To do small acts of love and service to take small steps of courage. This is what it means to be salt. Now, practically speaking, it can look like a million different things. Maybe it means that you don't engage in the inappropriate joke. You don't participate in the gossip. You include the classmate that everyone else excludes. You don't just mow to your boundary, but you mow your neighbor's lawn as well. You make a meal for your neighbor when they're sick. You invite your neighbor over for a meal to your place. You invite them to church. Someone had a neighbor come to church last week and they came up to me and they were so excited that they'd finally come. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. Not necessarily the big and the dramatic, but small things done with integrity. Small acts of love and service, which in God's hands make a big difference. I love the way that one writer, Sky Jathani, puts it. He says, in a dark, deteriorating world, there is nothing more wonderful than simple people living as Jesus taught. The world does not need more ambitious Christians. Our world desperately needs more ordinary lives lived in rich communion with God. Now, let me tell you a story from ancient history that that kind of illustrates what we're talking about. The Roman Emperor Julian in the 4th century, he was upset about the spread of Christianity in his empire. And he wrote a letter in which he said about the Christian faith, he said this, he said, it has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. And listen to this, and that the godless Galileans, what a great term for Christians, godless Galileans, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. 
while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render to them. He's saying they're not just helping their own poor, they're helping ours. And the simple act of caring for the poor, it provoked the most powerful man in the land. And eventually, along with other factors, it led to the transformation of the entire empire. Because this is what can happen when we live salty lives. When we do small things with integrity and love and faith. But here's the thing. Even this can be challenging, can't it? I mean, our lives are busy. Our workplaces can be intimidating. I've been removed from the secular workforce for a while now, but I understand that's the case. Our neighbours can be uninterested. Our classmates can even be hostile. And the temptation in these environments is to water down our faith. To do our best to just kind of fit in with everyone else. To laugh at the joke. To participate in the gossip. To keep our head down. And this is why Jesus gives us this challenge in verse 13. He says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, strictly speaking, salt can never lose its saltness. It's, it's like saying water can lose its wetness. But salt can become so contaminated by other substances... It can become so mixed up with other impurities that it becomes diluted and essentially useless. If I had a bucket and I put a sprinkle of salt in it and then poured in a whole lot of dirt, mixed it all up, you're not putting that substance on your eggs in the morning, are you? And this is Jesus' warning to us. If we allow ourselves to be contaminated by the world, if we allow ourselves to be consumed and subsumed by the world, if we allow ourselves to become just like everyone else, if we lose what makes us distinct, we will lose our influence. We will lose our potency. We will become ineffective. Jesus even says we will become useless and in danger of being discarded. Sinclair Ferguson, a, a, a commentator and a preacher, he says, cease to be different and we cease to be Christians. It's a challenging word for us, isn't it? It's a challenging word for me. And I don't want to minimize it or downplay it. It's possible to say that you believe in Jesus, but to live your life as if he doesn't exist. It's possible to come to church every Sunday, but then live the rest of your week and barely think about Jesus. And if that's us, then we're in danger of losing our saltiness. So let me ask you, are you different to those around you? And how are you different to them? Again, it, it can't just be, well, I go to church on a Sunday. Jesus demands more from us than sitting in a pew. Or, or Jesus demands more from us than standing in a pulpit. How is your life and your character different? How do you do your job differently to your colleagues? How do you spend your mon money differently to your friends? How do you raise your children differently to other parents around you? How do you speak differently to those around you? Are you distinctly and obviously Christian? Now, it's a challenging word, but we're not alone in it. Jesus is with us, and this is what he's calling us to do. We are to be the salt of the earth. 
It's the first image that Jesus applies to his followers. Not soldiers, not monks, not chameleons, but salt. But it's not the only image that Jesus uses. He goes on in verse 14 to say, you are the light of the world. Now, notice Jesus says you are the light of the world. He doesn't say you are a light in the world. He says you're it. There is no other light. You and you alone are the light. But what's interesting is that Jesus says elsewhere, I am, about himself, I am the light of the world. Now, who is it? Jesus or us? Who's the light? The answer is both. You see, Jesus comes as the light, and when we come to Jesus, we're brought into his light, and we begin to reflect his light. This is why Ephesians chapter 5 in the Bible says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Think about it this way. I heard this from a preacher named Dr. Donald Barnhouse. Now, you might not know this, but the moon does not make its own light. The moon actually reflects the light of the sun. And you see, Jesus is the sun, and Christians are like the moon. Jesus is the source of light, and we are the reflection of his light. And Jesus' return to heaven was kind of like the sun setting. It's not that the source of light was gone, it just couldn't be seen directly anymore. And you now see the light via the moon. And this is our role in the world today. We are to reflect the light of Jesus. Now, what does this mean for us? What does it look like? Well, firstly, it means that we must be visible. This is Jesus' point in verses 14 to 15. He says that we're to be like a lamp in a dark house, or we're like to be a city on a dark horizon. And I love that Jesus uses both an individual and a collective example, because we're to shine, we're to show the light of Jesus in our individual lives, and we're to do it together as the people of God as well, like a city on a hill. And this means that we can't retreat from the world. We can't all go live in monasteries in the mountains, as appealing as that might sound. We shouldn't hide our faith from others. We are to be visible to others. And and now again, what does this look like practically? Well, look at what Jesus tells us in verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say they may listen to your good preaching. They may listen to your good music. They may read your good books. Now, all of those things are good and important, but Jesus says that they may, the world should see our good deeds. This is what will make them sit up and take notice. This is what will draw others to the light of Christ. Now, what are these good deeds? I love the way that John Stott puts it. He says, good works, good deeds is a general expression to cover everything a Christian says and does because they are a Christian. Every outward and visible manifestation of their Christian faith. So when Christians love others, even their enemies, the world sees the light of Christ. When Christians pray for and respect those in authority, even if they don't agree with their political persuasions, the world sees the light of Christ. When we give generously to those in need, the world sees the light of Christ. When we control our anger or our lust or our tongue 
the world sees the light of Christ. When we trust God to provide for us in difficult economic times, the world sees the light of Christ. When we feed the hungry, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, visit the sick, the world sees the light of Christ. And perhaps especially when we forgive those who have wronged us, the world sees the light of Christ. You know, around this time, three years ago, there was a tragic accident in Sydney. A family lost three children and one cousin because a drunk driver swerved off the road and ploughed into these kids on the sidewalk. And during the aftermath of the tragedy, the parents spoke about their grief and their shock. They spoke about their anger and their, their frustration and their sadness. But they also spoke about their incredible decision to forgive the driver. They spoke about their Christian faith, the hope that they have in Jesus and the importance of forgiveness. And there were many that looked at this and they just didn't understand. Many that were amazed. But all recognized that this was different. Because it was the light of Christ. Now, what gives someone the strength to do that? What gives someone the strength to live that way? And the answer is all that Christ has done for us. I mean, we can forgive others because we have been forgiven much by God in Christ. We love others because we have been loved by God in Christ. We serve others because we have been served by God in Christ. And we can give to others because God has given us everything in Christ. And this is why we don't fight the world. This is why we don't run away from the world. And this is why we don't give in to the world, because we have good news for the world. And we are to live good lives in the world. So that God, our Father, might be glorified. So what about you, my friend? How is God calling you to be salt? To be distinct? To be different? To do small things with great love? And how is he calling you to be light? To show his kindness, his goodness, his character to those around you? Let's do what we can with what we have to be salt and light this year. And let's do it together. So that our light will shine brighter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that it both cuts to the very marrow of our bone to expose us and reveal us. And thank you that it also provides the healing balm that we need in Christ. So Lord, where we might have been convicted or challenged today, help us to turn not inwards, to not, not look to ourselves, but help us to turn outwards, to look to Christ. The one who has done everything for us and given everything to us. The one who will never leave us or forsake us. The one who says, you are salt, you are light. I have made you then. And now go into the world and live and become what I have called you and declared you to be.
So whatever step we need to take today, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, help us to take it. Help us to not give up, but to keep running the race that is set before us. For the good of others, for the advance of your kingdom, for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.